Heavenly Father, we come to you today in Christ's name, gathered in this congregation, gathered together locally, united by your grace to reveal the work of Christ. Every individual here who has been born again is a revelation of your grace. And you have brought us together this morning to edify and equip and strengthen one another in the truth that reveals your grace. And so we pray this morning as we submit our time and our lives and our attention to you in your word, that you would, would cultivate and reveal the truth about our unity in Christ. And so equip us and encourage us so that we will tell others about this great grace that's found in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the church. Thank you for the, the people of God. Thank you today for each one that's represented here and those who can't be here that are part of our church family. I, I thank you for your people here at Sovereign Grace. I pray that you would bless them, strengthen them, call them to repentance this morning, call us all to repentance this morning, and to rejoice over the grace in Christ and your forgiveness that brings us together in this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Christ has united, united us, united all believers to himself through his great sacrifice, through his love. And he wants us to rejoice in that unity and reveal that unity corporately. He wants the world to see his glory through his church, where we manifest his work. And we do so joyfully, and we do so humbly, and we do so practically. So this morning, I want us to, to learn from Philippians later how to do that. But to do that, we need to, to understand how important unity and truth is to Jesus. Because he does want us to be unified, but he wants us unified by the right means, which would be his word and his people. So go with me to John 17, 17 this morning to begin with. Open God's word with me to John 17, 17. And here is the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the midst of his prayer, in the middle of his prayer for his disciples and all those who would learn of the gospel through his disciples, he, he prays this on our behalf. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So he defines to us through this prayer how he wants us to be set apart unto God. He has, he has asked the Father to set us apart. He's praying for his church to be set apart, his body to be set apart and united, united in the truth, the truth that comes from his word. In Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, verse 11, God reveals how unity is achieved in the church, in Christ's body. How unity is achieved by learning the truth that Christ prayed that would set us apart from the world and unite us together joyfully, humbly, and practically. Ephesians 4, 11. This is how God is going to unite His body. He's going to unite us by teaching us truth from His Word. Verse 11 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that... We may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Unity is achieved in the body by learning the truth through the church. God's designed the church to be a place where the people of God come together to be equipped by pastor teachers, by the prophets in the past, by the apostles' work here in the scriptures, so that we could equip the saints so that you would not be tossed to and fro, so that you would actually be pulled together, not separated, 
by error and division and disbelief. The church is united and gathered around the truth of who Christ is and what he's accomplished. We're built on the foundation of who Jesus is, according to the scriptures. That's what brings us all into the body. And that's what continues to unite us and bring us together practically. Now, in Philippians 1, 27 to verses 2, 1 and 2, we see how, we see how the unity of the church is achieved... We see how it's achieved and how it's applied and revealed by our response to the truth practically, humbly and joyfully here. In Philippians 1, 127, I have to get there myself here. We'll read the text in a few moments down to chapter 2, verse 2. And we'll see again how the unity of the church is revealed by responding to these truths, by responding to the truth about who Christ is and what we're called to do and how confident we can be in our calling because of God's truth and revelation here. We see that in Philippians 2, 1 and 2. Here we're, I'll give you an outline. Here, what we're going to see is this. We're going to see the unity of Christ's body is revealed by, number one, our encouragement in Christ. And the unity of Christ's body is revealed by our, number two, comfort from Christ's love. And unity in Christ's body is revealed by our, thirdly, our participation in the Spirit. And this unity in the body is revealed by our provisions from the Spirit, fourthly. We're going to see these things. We're, we're going to see that we are encouraged in Christ. We are comforted with His love. We are participating in the Spirit's work. And we are made able by His provisions as He equips us in the church. We'll see these four truths in Philippians 2, 1, and 2 in a moment. But to understand what Paul's meaning here in this passage, we're going to have to go back and read from 27 down because Philippians 2, 1 is pointing us back to something. When you see the phrase, so or therefore, in verse 1, it's pointing us back to a corporate command that's given to the church in Philippians 1, 27. Don't, don't misunderstand Philippians 1, 27. That is not a, a simple personal command that is a corporate command to the body of christ yes it applies to us individually but it's not made for individuals it's made for the corpus it's made for the body we are to live and in such a way in the world that we reveal how much jesus is worth as a church god has chosen to manifest his glory his grace his love through his people corporately his covenant people are called out from the world, out of darkness, and they're placed in the light to shine and be the light of the world and the salt that brings flavor to the world that shows them there is something to be grasped that's great in Christ. So let's look at the text. Philippians 1.27. Again, he's speaking to the church at Philippi. This is a command given to the body of believers at Philippi. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Now 27 
to 30 gives us a, a, a command in a, a, in a long, drawn-out form. It's a command. And in verse 2, there's another command that the Apostle Paul brings. Complete my joy. But these two commands are driven by what's indicated. There's an indicative that leads to the imperative. What's indicated is we can do this because of verse 1. We can live in a way that reflects the great worth of Christ and the gospel by standing, by striving, by suffering for Christ's sake. And we can do so with the same mind and the same love and full accord and one mind because of verse 1. So it's really important that we see this. This command is essential. Both these commands are really together. And this command is, is for the church to be unified because Paul is saying, you have opponents. The greatest enemy that we all have in the church is within us. It's our flesh. I'll get to this in a few moments in, in the text, but one of the reasons we have disunity in the church and we have division in the church is not always because of outsiders, more because of what's inside us. When we are driven and compelled and directed and filled with our own desires, it leads to division and disunity. Yet when we're filled with God's word and truth, it leads to unity in Christ and it edifies the saints. And if we're not unified in the truth, before we face a battle, Paul was facing a battle. He was in prison for preaching Christ and he was rejoicing in the midst of his sorrows because he'd already been established in the truth. He knew that Christ placed him there sovereignly for a purpose. And he was confident in that truth. And if we're not confident in the truth, when the battle's coming, we will, we will scatter when we see it on the horizon if we're not really prepared for this. If we don't know that God has ordained our salvation and our suffering. Disunity was, was beginning to be a problem at the church at Philippi. It's obvious when you read through the text of Philippians. It was creeping in, though. It wasn't full-blown. And what I think is really interesting is the Apostle Paul pastorally says to the church, I'm discerning some division. I'm discerning some disunity. There's these two women in chapter 4, verse 2, that are bickering. Well, because they're, they're being driven by their flesh. They have selfish desires. That's why, we, that's why we battle. That's why we have divisions in the church. But there, there may have been a reason ultimately behind that. There may have been an, an, an attack on their unity by false teachers in 3.2. In 3.2, there's some false teachers mentioned. He calls them dogs. They're boastful, arrogant legalists which do not lend themselves to humility or grace. And they may have made an influence and an impact on the saints to some degree and, and stirred up these selfish desires and these arrogant feelings that caused division between these two saints there in Philippians 4.2. We don't know that for sure. But we obviously see there's a reason why, why Paul is taking some time out to say, I want to make sure you're united in this battle together. Because there is an enemy, and he will attack. And you need to be prepared for this. And every church needs to be prepared for this. We do get attacked from the outside quite often. That's the world's business. That's what they do. They hate us. We understand that. But the worst attacks, the, the worst of all attacks comes from within the body and it breaks the heart you know he he cries out over demas at one point paul does he cries out over demas who who left him for the love of the world we we have division and we have distractions and we have human misunderstandings and so we need to be prepared that when those things come we can stand firm together united immovable grounded in god's calling on our life Every church needs to be ready for this. We're not immune here at Sovereign Grace. We, we need to be prepared to fight against disunity. But listen, we don't, we don't fight against disunity by going after our enemies. That's not how we fight as Christians. We fight on our knees, and we fight by fixing our eyes on Christ. See, when, when you understand the truth, and you focus on the truth, and you rejoice in the truth, that in itself has a way of revealing problems and seeking a way to fix those problems by grace, by God's means of grace, by teaching, by training, by equipping, by comforting, by encouraging. That's how we deal with our enemies when they come into the church to attack us. We take them back to Christ. 
We come back to the gospel over and over again. We fix our eyes on who Christ is so that we're united in the truth, and then that will expose errors, and that will expose what we need to do. We need to point them to Christ. When we have division in the church, it's always a sin issue. And Christ commands us to repent and believe in Him. And so we address it by looking to Christ first. That's what Paul did in Philippians. That's what's really interesting in this text, in Philippians 2, 1 and 2. He says says in in the passage previous to this that we have opponents, and we shouldn't be afraid of them. We should stand firm and, and know that God has called us into this battle with King Jesus for a purpose. Yet, he doesn't go on to describe and attack his enemies in chapter 2, verse 1. He goes on to point the saints back to what is going to ground them and equip them, and that's indicated in the text to show them that they can obey the command to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Together. In 2, 1 and 2, Paul is saying that we can stand in one spirit. We can strive together for the gospel. We can suffer together by fixing our eyes on our commander. Look with me again at Philippians 2, 1 and 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We're commanded in the previous text to stand and strive and suffer. And what he's doing here, he's telling us something here in verse 1. He's telling us that we can do this. We can do this. We can follow Christ as our commander into these areas of life together, corporately. We can do this if, so if, if indicates if the following conditions are true. He's not questioning whether they believe there's encouragement in Christ or questioning whether they have comfort from love or questioning if there is participation in the Spirit or affection and sympathy. He's not questioning any of that. The Greek text actually reveals to us that he's not saying that at all. He's actually saying this. He's saying because or since there is encouragement in Christ or on the basis of these things... You can do what you're commanded to do. You can stand and you can strive and you can suffer together because you have these things. The Greek text shows us that we can do this because, number one, we have encouragement in Christ. Encouragement in Christ to suffer together as heavenly soldiers defending Christ's truth. There's encouragement in that, isn't there? The word encouragement there could also be translated alleviation. Or consolation. But I think alleviation is a better translation. Since we have alleviation from our enemies. That's, see, verse 1 is directly tied to verse 29 and 30. It's directly tied. He just got through telling them, don't be afraid of your enemies. Have no fear. Stand strong. Suffer for Christ. Because you have the alleviation of Christ. You have the consolation or the encouragement of Jesus who called you into this battle. And we can do this, secondly, because we have Christ's comfort. We have His love so that we can suffer and strive together for the truth of the gospel. And thirdly, we can do this because we have participation in the Spirit. We can participate in the Spirit as He works, as we strive together. He unites us together in the truth. The Spirit is the one who illuminates the truth to us as a church. So that we can strive, we can go side by side into the battle without fear, linked together in the truth of the Spirit. We can do this, Paul will say, because fourthly, we have provisions. Since we have the provisions that the Spirit gives us, we can do this. We have the provisions of the affection and sympathy of the brothers and sisters in Christ. So we can stand firm together in one spirit as we do battle for the truth. That's, that's a big summary of everything that I'm going to say in these two verses. The unity of Christ's body is revealed by number one. Our encouragement 
in Christ as our commander. That's the context. He just got through telling them in 29 and 30 that they are going to suffer under the lordship of Jesus. Not because of Jesus, not because he's making them suffer, but because his enemies who still have animosity toward Christ see us as enemies. And so they come after us. And he says, he is your commander. He's telling you to go forth to stand and to strive and to suffer. And you can be encouraged. If your commander calls you into this battle, he is not going to leave you. The Great Commission reveals the Great Commander. The Great Commission tells us that Jesus says we're going to go into the world and we're going to preach the gospel, we're going to disciple, and he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. That's the encouragement of Christ that he's talking about here. And so in verse 1a, Paul writes this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, that's his point. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, we need not be afraid of our opposition. Be it sinful men, be it doubtful hearts, or even Satan himself, because Christ is our champion. Christ is our commander. He calls us, He sends us, and He alleviates the fear for us. Because He wants us to stand and to strive and to suffer for the sake of the gospel. So many may come to know Him. Let me ask you this. Do you believe it's worth giving up your earthly goods and comforts to share the gospel with one person who may come to Christ? If you don't believe that, you doubt the gospel's power. You need to be convinced that if Christ calls us to share the gospel in hostility and difficulty and bad situations, He has a purpose for it. And He will provide for us what we need. And if it's taking us home, so be it. If He takes us home, that's the best thing He could do for us anyway. And what a way to go. Proclaiming the Gospel. When you look back at this text here in Philippians 2.1, basically, if, if you had a better way of, of translating this to draw out the full meaning of the text, it actually would be translated this way. And since there is, in fact, encouragement in Christ and His command and His calling to stand and strive and suffer, we should do so courageously. We should courageously serve Him. And we should courageously serve Him by encouraging others. In the body first and in the world second. We are to encourage one another in the truth. If we find encouragement in the truth about who Christ is and His calling on our life, then we should be encouraging others in that same truth doctrinally. The church is here to equip the saints so that we won't be tossed to and fro. So we'll stand firm, confident in Christ, confident in the truth. He wants us to stand firm courageously, Stand firm knowing that the truth of God's Word will be enough to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It is sufficient. It's a sufficient book. It's not lacking anything that we need for life and for godliness. And, and biblical doctrinal encouragement is what God has ordained to unite us anyway. Christ says He gives His life for us to set us apart in the truth and He wants us to be taught the truth, Ephesians 4. And so He wants us to be united in Him as He is revealed in the Gospel. Doctrinal encouragement unites saints together, and it unites us together in humility. Doctrinal encouragement unites us together in humility, and it removes the fear of our enemies, and it brings Christ glory. We see all of those things that I just described in 2 Corinthians 4. Let's go there. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, let me just stop for a second. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he has been suffering for the sake of the gospel. Once again, he had been standing firm. He had been striving. He had been suffering. And he says, it's all worth it. It's all worth it for the sake of uniting God's people and, and helping them find safety in Christ and helping them find truth. 
So he says in verse 2, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now listen, what he's doing is so amazing. He's giving them a Christology. He is teaching them doctrine to encourage them as he goes through suffering. He is encouraging the saints doctrinally here in this text. We should be encouraged by this text as well. We are called to do what he's doing here, to proclaim the message. Look what verse 5 says. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as kurios. That means Lord and Master. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, he's encouraging the saints. He's, he's humbly encouraging the saints. He's saying, we're here to teach you what you don't know about Jesus, but we're just your slaves serving our master. This is amazing. This is the wisdom of God revealed to us in this text. He is doing what I believe he's encouraging the saints to do in Philippi as he says, be encouraged in Christ and encourage one another in the truth. Here's how he's saying to do it. Renew their minds. And when you do that, you'll humble the heart. That will unite us. We're all united by the same grace. And look what it says. Verse 6. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He, he's saying it all comes from God. God opened up the heart. God opened up the eyes. See, he's the great Apostle Paul in their eyes. The great orator, the great speaker. But he says, I'm not going to use any of those skills because it wasn't those skills that brought me into the kingdom. It was Christ. He came after me. He sought me. He knocked me down. He blinded me so that I could see. He humbled me. And so he's, he's encouraging the saints in this doctrine that we're all brought in by the knowledge of God, the knowledge that God reveals to us. And then he goes on to say how humbly he stands before God in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, jars of clay, there were all types of jars of clay in the Old Testament and in the New Testament times. But I tend to think that because of some other things that Paul says and even Philippians, that the jar of clay he's thinking of here is probably one that's related to a privy pot as he regards himself in light of the holiness of God. He says, though I have this immeasurable treasure and it's wrapped up in something that was disgusting and unworthy, it was done so for this reason, to show that the surpassing power of my salvation belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. In other words, we're suffering for His sake, standing for Him, striving with Him, so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. The life of Jesus, it means the attributes of Jesus, the characteristics of Jesus, the encouragement of Jesus is coming through the apostles' suffering on behalf of his gospel and for the sake of others. He says, that's why we do what we do. So we can doctrinally encourage you to find your strength in Christ. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you, since we have the same spirit of faith. There's a humbling statement. He's putting himself on the same plane as these believers. We all have the same spirit of faith. According to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. 
we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed, encouraged, alleviated from the pain that we're suffering under. We're renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for that the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. He is, he is encouraging this group of believers in the truth. He is encouraging them in doctrine. He is saying to them, this is what brought us in. It was the grace of God. It unites us. It's going to carry us home. We're going home together. We're suffering in this time for a period, for a short time. It's a light momentary affliction. But one day we're going to have an eternal weight of glory granted to us. That truth encouraged the saints at Corinth, I'm sure. I'm sure that truth encourages you when you are afflicted when you suffer and strive and stand for Christ. The truth about Jesus reveals the glory of Jesus in the church. And that's what mattered to Paul the most. That's why when you go back to Philippians 2, and actually verse 2 this time, 2a, Paul, Paul says, you, you want to make my joy full? You want, you want to fill me up? And by the way, you're commanded to. As, as they're commanded to make Paul's joy full, in, in, in essence, what they're, what they're doing is they're obeying the command of Christ himself to manifest his love and his mind and his truth in such a way that it will actually fill up the joy of others. Paul says, make my joy complete. He says, complete my joy. Look what it says in verse 2. A. He commands the church at Philippi to complete my joy by being of the same mind. Complete my joy means basically this. Fill up the cup of my joy to the top until it overflows. And, and the way you're going to edify me, the way you're going to make my heart rejoice is for you to magnify Jesus by having the same mind as Christ mind of humility, a mind centered on grace, and that comes through doctrinal purity. No one, no one is naturally humble. We're all very proud people in spite of our humble stance. Humility comes from the revelation of who God is and who we are in light of his greatness. So Paul is saying in 2a, if you want to make my joy and my ministry and the ministry of all other pastors and teachers and churches full, here's what you do. You, you doctrinally understand what Christ has done, then you have the same mind. Let that cultivate humility in you. Let the doctrine of what Christ has done and who he is cultivate the same mind, the same thoughts in you that he had. The thoughts that actually took him to the cross Humbly in your place. Let those same thoughts produce something in your hearts that reveals the glory of Christ publicly. Let it produce thanksgiving. Let it produce humility. And it will. As you ponder the work of Christ, it humbles the believer's heart. That's what brings us into unity in the body. When we all know how we came in, we all came through the cross. We came there and we saw our sins laid upon the Savior's back and He was receiving the wrath that we deserved. We recognize that we have nothing to bring and nothing that sets us apart from anyone else as better than they are. We come humbled by the truth, thankful for His grace. We come to the truth through His Scripture that reveals these things. Doctrine reveals that Jesus died for the despised and the needy, not the worthy. Understand this. Jesus didn't die for you because of what you would do after you were saved. 
you do what you do because of your salvation. You do it because God saved you and equipped you and empowers you, but He didn't save you because of what you would do. No, He takes the despised and the needy and the not many noble, and He puts them in places that they could never imagine themselves being in so that the surpassing glory would belong to Jesus and it would encourage the saints because we're all in this together. Look with me in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Here we can see, I think, a very humbling truth. And a truth that I think should cultivate thanksgiving in our hearts as we understand the doctrine behind this, as we understand the doctrine of what unites us, which is the grace of our God, as it's manifest to the work of Christ. I think when you see the doctrine that's revealed here, you'll see that you were one of the despised and the needy, not the worthy, who received God's mercy. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, For do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What Paul is saying here is this. Someone who is living in a habitual, constant, unrepentant state of unrighteousness has no assurance and no hope of the kingdom of God. He says, do not be deceived. And he's going to give a list of things that will not be accepted in the kingdom of God, of people and their sins that will not be accepted in the kingdom of God. And then what he's going to say at the end of this is, you fit in there somewhere. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Neither the sexually immoral. In other words, neither the guy who watches the commercials on TV that he shouldn't watch. and takes pleasure in those. Lustful thoughts. Roaming the internet in places you shouldn't go. Living in a state of constant sexual sin. Physically or mentally. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Everyone in this room has been guilty to some degree. Nor idolaters will inherit the kingdom of God. It means if you've ever had a wrong view of God, if you've ever placed yourself in the place of God, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You've tried to usurp his authority. You've tried to, to give glory to something else other than the creator himself. We've all done that as well. We worship ourself primarily before we're converted. And then we know that we die with Christ, and we're raised with Christ, yet we're still trapped in the, this flesh and we still battle with indwelling sin, but we no longer are enslaved to it. We're set free by the power of Christ from the penalty and the enslavement of sin. He also says that adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. People who constantly have roaming eyes or roaming feet. Who seek someone else besides their spouse. Nor men who practice homosexuality. Very clearly, sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, and homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who say to God, Your design of me is incorrect. I am the sovereign one over my body. I will do with it what I please. I spit in your face. I will practice this homosexual act in spite of your design. It's it's an abomination. It is the ultimate act of refusing to submit to God and His design. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I'll tell you this. since, Since we've been in Ada... I've counseled more students in the last four years who've struggled with this sin than any of the other sins listed. It is a real problem that's being propagated and pushed upon our society and in our kids' lives. Whether you know it or not, the media is feeding it and opening the doors to this temptation that were never opened when I was growing up. 
And so we're going to meet people who struggle with this issue. And just because you're tempted by something doesn't mean you're entrapped by something. You don't pick our temptations, do you? No. They happen. And what we pick is we pick the, the act of sin. We, we choose to act on those temptations. And when we do that, that is sin. When we go against God's design. So you're going to run into a lot of people who struggle with this, but you're also going to run into people who practice this openly and unrepentantly. There's no hope for the homosexual apart from God's grace. There's no hope for you and I apart from God's grace. Because what you're going to see here is the sexually immoral, the idolater, the adulterer, the homosexual, we're all equally guilty before a holy and righteous God. We're all just as defiled in His sight. I would say that the predominant issue today that we need to address in the church isn't homosexuality, but it's probably adultery. It's probably fornication. There's probably more people serving on church boards that are guilty of that than homosexuality, and those things need to be addressed just as adamantly as our opposition to homosexuality. But he goes on, notice this. You know, we, we, we pick these as the big, the big sins in verse 9. And then we, we, we don't think that this next sin would actually be categorized with, with sexual immorality. I mean, we think of pedophiles. We think of wretched people when we think of that. But here, here he says, even if you're a thief, if you're an unrepentant thief, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means if you love to go to the bank and steal their pins. <laughs> and I don't mean ask for one. I don't mean... You know, take one as it's customary, but I mean like reach in and grab a handful, put them in your pocket because you get some sort of pleasure out of that. That's thievery. Or, or if you short people on their change, those people who, who are thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. We've all been thieves. You've all stolen something. I remember the first time I stole something. I was probably about seven or eight years old. I went to a, a little convenience store in my hometown of Byers, Oklahoma, population 200. And I walked in because a bunch of guys, we were like first graders, and they were boasting about they could steal bubble gum. And you were in the cool crowd if you could steal a piece of bubble gum. And I remember walking in and stealing a piece of bubble gum, walking out. Now I look back, I know that the clerk knew we were taking those things. But my heart was weighed down with guilt immediately by God's grace. I was an unregenerate little boy, but God and His work and His grace and His work of conscience was pointing out my sin. I remember when I was saved, actually repenting of that sin and other thieveries that I committed as I grew older. But those people won't inherit the kingdom of God. A thief will not inherit the kingdom of God. Nor will a greedy person. Wait a minute, now it's getting a little more personal. It's not so distant. He's making us all fit into this category. He's saying, look, if, if you understand who you are in Christ doctrinally, you should be humbled by God's mercy. We've all been greedy. We've all done something and taken something and desired something we didn't deserve. Neither will a drunkard inherit the kingdom of God. Those who love to be intoxicated, whether with alcohol or with drugs, that's a problem today with many people. Nor revilers, people who like to stir up problems. Nor swindlers, people who deceive people, trick them to get something out of them. Manipulators, con artists. It's, it's, it's almost equal with the act of witchcraft. It's manipulation. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul lays an amazing statement on us in verse 11. And such were some of you. He's writing to the Corinthians, and they're, they're hearing this. They're hearing, wow, we live in a sexually driven society, and we've all been to the temple, and everybody there knew what the temple meant, which was the temple of prostitution, the temple of, of Diana that you would go to, and you would actually celebrate your worship through a prostitute. We've all been guilty of these things. We've all fallen short. We, we, we have no hope. But notice what he says. And such were some of you. There is hope for everyone listed in this text. There is hope to change based on what Christ has done according to the Scriptures. 
the truth, the doctrinal encouragement of the truth, is what picks up the sexually immoral, the idolater, the adulterer, the homosexual, the thief, the greedy person, the drunkard, the reviler, the swindler, and says, you will inherit the kingdom of God because of this. But you were washed. You were washed how? You were washed by the blood of Jesus Christ Himself. His blood was shed to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. And not only that, oh, this is great. He says, look, be encouraged. You have no sin debt. You have a positive righteousness now. You have no sin debt. And get this, He's not through with you. You, you were sanctified. You were, you were washed and then you were picked up out of that filth and that disgusting sin and placed in the holy place before God. You're seated with Him in heavenly places, placed in His presence, set apart for Him, not only in eternity, but now here practically, you're being washed by the Word. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Wait, that means the King Himself said, I declare you to be just, to be holy, to be righteous, based on the washing of Christ Jesus. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The triune God was washing, sanctifying, and declaring you right because of Jesus. That is doctrinal encouragement to weary saints. Saints who would probably suffer like the Apostle Paul. Who would be called on later in Corinthians and in Philippians, obviously, to strive together for the sake of the gospel. And to suffer for their stance and their unity in the truth. Could you imagine what it would be like in this culture? I guess you can because we live in a culture much like Corinthians. Could you imagine walking into Hollywood, walking into San Francisco and declaring that text? How would you be received? Probably like Paul, who was taken out and nearly beat to death with rocks, yet got back up and continued preaching for the sake of Christ and for the glory of His name and for the good of the people. Doctrinal purity cultivates in the church joyful unity. Joyful unity that's grounded in humility. Doctrinal purity cultivates joyful hum humility in our minds because our minds are affected by the truth. Our minds are affected by the truth that God chose us in spite of our depravity for His glory, for His namesake. To reveal how wonderful He is and powerful He is, He chose the despised and the needy so that the surpassing glory would belong to Him and that we could be His ambassadors to declare this great news to the world. So we're called on in Philippians to stand firm in this and encourage others in Christ, fill up their joy by having the same mind, humbled by the truth, humbled by doctrine. Stand firm, united in one spirit, because the Bible reveals that we are chosen because of what Christ has done, not what we would do, not what we were. That didn't save us. We weren't righteous. We weren't able to please God. We are not chosen because of what we do for Christ. We're chosen because of what Christ has done for us. There's a humble joy in that truth. There's a humble joy in that truth that is to cultivate unity in the church through humility. When we all understand that we're all trophies of God's grace, saved by His love and kept by Christ Himself, we should be eager to encourage one another as fellow soldiers of the King. Now, this morning, I'm going to stop here because there's way too much for me to cover in the rest of this passage. And I realize I have just preached through one part of four parts of verse 1 and verse 2. There is some important application in this for us as a church body as we think about how to apply encouragement here locally. 
and to see how to do it practically through the Scripture's instruction. But let me just say a couple things to help you think about this as you go on throughout the week. If you, if you want to encourage the saints here in our church, let me tell you one practical way to do it. One practical way to encourage one another in the truth is to be here. It's to be here, learning the truth. Not be here because we want to count our attendance, but be here because together as we grow in the knowledge and wisdom of Christ, we are united, we are equipped, and we're encouraged to go out with great boldness and declare the gospel together as a body. So let me encourage you to just be here. Wednesdays, be here. Sundays, be here. Fellowship meetings, be here. And when you're here, you've been commanded by, by God in Peter, in First Peter, to exercise the gift that God's given you for the sake of this body. So be here and be seeking a way to exercise your spiritual gift in this local church. See, so we need to be looking out. You're going to read further in Philippians 2. You're going to see, consider others as more important than yourself. That means we do that here first. It overflows into our families and into our world and our evangelism, but it begins in the church. So when you're coming, are you asking how can I serve this person? How can I serve that person today? How can I encourage them in the truth? Maybe, maybe they've been weary. Maybe they've had a bad week. Maybe they've doubted their salvation based on the way their week has went. And maybe you showing up and coming alongside them with a, a spiritual gift and exercising that and sharing something with them from the Word of God, maybe taking the time just to love them, they will find encouragement. And they will be picked back up and used by God in a powerful way as they repent and rejoice in His means of grace to the church. So this morning, let's give thanks to Him for that and we'll dismiss this hour of preaching and uh, prepare for our equipping class. Father, thank You today for the time that we have here together. Even though we looked briefly at the text in Philippians 2.1, I do pray that your truth, as it is brought forth, will have a sanctifying and purifying effect upon our lives. I pray that you would be honored as we seek to encourage in Christ the way we've been encouraged by Christ through truth and through sacrifice and selflessness. And to do so with humility, knowing that we're all brought in by your grace. I'm always amazed as, as I read Ephesians and as you speak to us in Ephesians as well as Philippians. And you, you show us in Ephesians that you have chosen your bride to be the representative of your glory here on earth. And you have chosen us by your grace to be in the body, to be a part of the bride. And I don't want to ever let that truth slip by my heart and my mind easily. Just to know that we were in the category of the despised and the needy, and yet you sought us, and we are no longer in that category by your grace. That should just overwhelm us with thanksgiving and humility and cause us to grow in unity and thanksgiving here as a church body just to know you and the power of your love that unites us is such an amazing and humble truth. Never let us forget the gospel of Christ. I pray and ask you to keep us freshly amazed in Jesus' name. Amen.